You're listening to What's Contemporary Now, a show about culture, the people, places, and things that together make it up. Our guest today is known by some for his work with Rihanna, but known to most as the gray-haired denim daddy that trades in culture with fashion as its packaging. Mel Ottenberg is the stylist and former creative director of O32C, who today serves as the editor-in-chief of Andy Warhol's Interview Magazine. An unapologetic lover of pop culture, his contribution to the industry very much feels uniquely his own. Given his self-proclaimed love of the high and the low equally, it comes as no surprise that his editorial offerings are often a collision of the two. He's a core industry member that somehow keeps the feeling of French culture alive. This is Mel Ottenberg, and we're talking about what's contemporary now. Mel Ottenberg, I sat down to prepare for this conversation, and funnily enough, I found myself asking the question, how does one prepare for a conversation with Mel Ottenberg? And I ended up in this sort of rabbit hole where it became more about culture than fashion specifically. So I wanted to get your point of view on what drives you as far as work. Do you find yourself pulling more from the culture than fashion itself, or is it a little bit of both? You're totally right. Fashion has been like a really helpful vehicle for me as opposed to my true love. Being a stylist is a way to work with people and create a feeling or a moment. And I do love clothes, but I like people and images more. And is that something that you feel was seeded in the younger DC years where you were sort of influenced by perhaps your mother's eccentricities or whatever style choices? Or was it something that got cultivated at the time you discovered the cock and came into your gay self? Or what was the genesis of that realization? Um, and for question. context for so, listeners, the cock is a gay bar, just not a literal, uh, <laughs> you know, item. Yes. Yes. Not my cock, the cock. Yes. Yes. Um, well, I was very fashion obsessed growing up, but it was also very you know, Madonna obsessed. It started with my mom styling herself with like cool 80s accessories and stuff. A lot of MTV, a lot of Vogue magazine. I moved to New York 25 summers ago. I moved to New York in summer of 98. I was an intern at Marc Jacobs and it was my first day and I was lugging these boxes and Robert Duffy, Marc Jacobs' former business partner who was like a really famous fashion luminary type. He was having a conversation with a stylist. Unfortunately, I don't know who the stylist is. I've always wondered who it was. Anyway, the stylist was like such a queen. And I was listening to this conversation. I was like, oh, these people, this stylist. And he was so like, I just like was like, I could never be a stylist. Like they seem so prissy and weird. And I don't know. It's just about being a designer. And then... I graduated from college. I got some jobs working in fashion in this way and that way. And I was like, wait, I don't want to be a designer. Like, what's a job where I could be like out and about meeting different people and doing this job that looks like this this week and then this job that looks this other way this week and working with different kinds of people? Like, I'm never going to find this job. I don't know what that job is. Because what I remember thinking when I was working for designers was like, Okay, what these people are doing is so awesome. I just don't want to work on one collection for six months. And the production of the collection itself is such torture. It's just not my... I was like, my gut is saying that my lifelong dream is not my dream. I got to find some new dream. It's something like that. Anyway, so there was that. And then I'm in New York. And then I discovered the cock, the gay bar on Avenue A and the East Village bar scene. And I'm so into that. And it was such a big moment there that I just sort of showed up and 
discovered and was like, this is my scene. I love this. That's what I sort of was going to four or five times a week. I mean, I was going to a million other places as well, but that's, I think, what I remember the most. And I was also dressing for that sort of, it was like a real melting pot of like electro and 80s glamour, hillbilly style, high pop. It was just some crazy mix of all these things. And I just was in the right place at the right time, just being new in town and have this like new universe to be a part of that I was so into. I was sewing a lot. I'd buy clothes at thrift stores and like remake them and cut them up and stuff. Reselling them, making them sexier, a little cooler, I guess. My look was very like specific and it's kind of wild looking. Then I met the photographer Matthias Rienz, who was the groovy photographer for the face, I had started Dutch and ran into him like three times on the street. And he was like, Oh, you should. S- oh, and sorry, bef- the week before that, I had decided I should be a fashion stylist assistant. And then I met Matthias and then I kept running into him on the street. And he said, You should style my friend Doug Friedman that he met me with for the face and I'll shoot it. So I was like, oh my God. And I figured out how to pull Helmet-like clothes and Gucci clothes. And then I sewed all these clothes and then the shoot happened. Doug wore them, ended up in the face. So I decided, okay, this is my job. I did this in like three days. And then there was these cool pictures. And then Matias asked me to do this other shoot. And then things started to happen. I decided then, which is the dumbest advice that I gave myself, people. So nobody gave me this advice was to just go out on my own and just do it because I just had it. You know what I mean? Like if people are like throwing jobs at me, it's going to be so easy. It's not regardless of like where I am now or what you think of my career, I should have been an assistant. I should have made myself learn from other people's mistakes is an easy way to say it. But like I should have learned in a less feral way how to you know, get where I'm going. So I would not recommend that because I think there's a lot to learn from people that have established careers. Has anybody stood out for you in that journey, regardless of whether or not you assisted early on, that were perhaps mentors or just exhibited traits and skill sets that you ultimately sought to acquire yourself? Anyone who did it in the way that you knew you wanted to do it? Oh my God, such a good question. I mean, of course, I was obsessed with Ariane Phillips always, Mm, you know mm -hmm. what I mean? Because she did fashion and Madonna and she did Madonna so well and she did other musicians so well. I would say Ariane Phillips. And I don't, I don't ever think I ever thought I should be Ariane Phillips, but I was like, she's the shit because she's Mm -hmm. doing movies, stage, and fashion. And that's like the coolest trifecta possible. And you obviously talked about your work with Rihanna and you guys have had some pretty epic moments together. Are there any that for you define that shared era as far as styling moments that really stand out? I feel like the Rihanna Margiela like Pope moment really seems like a internet fave right now. And I would agree with that. It's also because it's the most recent. I haven't worked with Rihanna really in five years. That was like 2018. But I do mm-hmm. really like I do like that one. Yeah, no, it was epic. I would say that and the yellow Woke omelet thing, which was the Met Gala a few years before that, the Adam Selman naked dress. I'm going to give it to those three. Well, you have a very unique balance between those two poles, which I think historically were considered to be opposite as far as working with celebrities as a fashion creative versus working within 
the more independent publishing space that you had started in with titles like ID Magazine. Obviously, you became the fashion director of O32C. The independent space always made sense to me because I never saw myself making sense anywhere in, I guess, anywhere at all, but I was going to say at least in New York. Mm -hmm. No, certainly not in like a magazine way. And so I always sought out that indie stuff, but I did always like celebrities and I always got along well with celebrities. Like one of my like third or fourth shoots was with Pamela Anderson. It was a David LaChapelle, Pamela Anderson shoot. It was 2001. So it's like really peak Pamela Anderson pop culture. And she was so outrageous and so wild. And I thought, oh, this is so glamorous. And that just gave me that bug because like she was so over the top. But she was also just very chill with me. And I think that I realized early on I could do that. So I was like working with Courtney Love shit i think these things just sort of happen like cordy and i had a mutual friend i started working with cordy love that was early in my career and and at that point was there ever any type of conflict of interest or sense of criticism from the fashion crowd that you were doing all of that celebrity work or was it already revered at that time i never did anything in like the straight up celebrity way you know what i mean like i never thought of going to hollywood and becoming a celebrity stylist that had eight clients that never interests me whatsoever. It still doesn't interest me at all. But I always liked working with celebrities. Like I would do Charlize Theron Dior ads with them when I was just doing other weird editorials for Days Your ID or whatever. And I just, I don't know, like those things, they were fragments for a long time. Like weird indie stuff some big celebrity stuff randomly, but, you know, a few times a year. And it took a long time for those things to make any sense together. Yeah, but they make perfect sense if you see the way they've culminated in your role today as the editor of Interview Magazine. You know, it's kind of the home of that particular intersection. Yes. You know, it's funny when I got a phone call, I think I got like a DM or something, like a message like, hey, let's talk about interview or something. I thought, oh my God, oh my fucking God. I forgot that interview was my favorite thing ever. It was the New York and the cultural universe that I looked at in high school and wanted to be a part of. And then by the time I moved to New York, it just wasn't the New York that I wanted to be a part of. It just wasn't. I don't know. It just wasn't on that tip, but it did help form me for sure. I got so much information out of it. Now it does make more sense. Yes. And thank God, you know, it's a little bit of a overly saturated subject when you talk about things like the role of a magazine today. But going back to your having been a fan of interviews, a publication back in the beginning, and then arriving at a point in your life where you're inheriting that particular role at a time where the climate within which magazines exist is entirely different. How have some of the ways you've had to kind of adapt your approach to print publishing changed during that time? Because you've been working with magazines for years already, and obviously it's changed throughout That's those years. That's really shit. Yeah, 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 mm-hmm. yeah. Well, I mean, in a way, I'm always thinking like, all right, the glory days are beyond us in publishing, let's say. So it's important to have a good time with what we're doing. It shouldn't be dreary or a drag. Print's dead, so let's have fun with print. <laughs> I, I don't mean it in a, in a... I'm seriously not trying to solve my moment. But it just is what it is. You know what I mean? Like, if these days are are not as glittery as the past, it's so important to have fun within them and try to take risks and just try to do things differently. And so that's a world that I just 
like to make sure are we having mm-hmm. fun? Is this fun? A lot of things don't seem fun when I think that they should seem fun. I don't mean that they shouldn't necessarily be serious because there's a lot of serious things going on in the world, but the mix of fun and frivolous and serious, I think is important. And that's something that I want to be dealing with. I also definitely think that branded things have changed so much and changed so much really in the last couple of years. And you can't fight that. You just have to be creative about it. If I spent time fighting that, I wouldn't have time to think creatively about branded stuff that I would have scoffed at a few years ago. But things have changed and I'm here for it. I'm actually here for it because a lot of the decadence of fashion in the past, we don't really have the room for anymore because we don't have the money. And I don't think we want to be as wasteful too. You know what I mean? Like the decadence of a lot of fashion in the past is so cool, but maybe it would seem sort of wasteful today. But I love it. I love the decadent past of fashion, but it doesn't seem right right now. Mm -hmm. I mean, it Mm -hmm. doesn't really seem contemporary. Well, you also like playing with opposites in a way, right? You love... What was it that you had said one time, you know, the sort of glam of dynasty, but you also love trash or sort of very raw kind of approach to things. Oh, yeah. I was saying I was really into dynasty. But I was also really into white trash, <laughs> like <laughs> stuff <laughs> growing up, like <laughs> real lows and highs and camp. I guess both of those things are very camp, which well, I'm not I afraid f- of. Yeah. And I feel like you marry it quite well even in the work that you do with the magazine. And in a way that sort of stands out as a different type of voice across the industry, because that's not to say that other examples of publishing are contrived or overly thought out or whatever it might be. But there is definitely a kind of tongue in cheek tone of voice that you take with interview, be that in the styling or the imagery or the nature of the conversations you're having in the interviews you have in the magazine. It has a very sort of youthful kind of fun sometimes subversive take on it and obviously that's an expression of the mindset that you're describing having on your own right definitely that's what you just described is what i want to get off so i'm glad i'm giving it to you Mm. and youth, (laughs) youth culture is another thing that you are a huge supporter of and that's not just in the nature of what it is you create in the work it's also the way you staff the team right making Dara Allen, who at the time was quite early on in her career, the fashion director, was a huge move. I know that you recently mentioned potential additions that also could come from that pool of youth and whatnot, just in terms of who you're looking at. But can you talk a little bit about your relationship to youth culture and how you pull that into the kind of expertise of your experience working with the magazine and anything else you do? Yeah, I'm looking out in my office right now and I'm looking at the young people I'm lucky to work with sitting around doing different things really well that I need. I'm old. I'm 47. I'm Gen X. I was reading this article in the New York Times about how everyone hates Gen X. And I was like, fuck, this article's so crazy. I don't think so. Does everyone hate me? I don't really hate being old, but it's just important to have the kids around, first of all, to listen to for ideas, but also to vibe off of and see if my ideas are cute for now. You know what I mean? I don't want interview to be something that is just for an industry. And I don't want it to just be something that takes itself too seriously. And I think that the origin story of interview is so interesting because all these kids that probably didn't seem to know what they were doing. And they are the idols of so many of us. You know what I mean? That like that created such cool stuff. 
but also interview was always a mess. It was always sort of sloppy. It was always sort of thrown together in some way. You didn't know what you were going to get personality-wise from like one page to the next. It was really about the personalities. And there were all these conversations that were so fun and messy. And it was like Andy Warhol and this one and that one interviewing people at a restaurant. And they just are so exciting. I don't think that everything has to be so organized and seeming so serious. I think people think that over-editing themselves always seems like the smarter move, but I question that. And and you know what? Because interviews are really small kind of magazine, I am lucky enough to have the chance to do something that doesn't always have to be as polished as what the world is sometimes telling you is like the right thing to do. I mean, that's an absolute luxury, right? From yeah, a yeah, business yeah. point of view, to have that type of yes. creative freedom is incredible. Yeah, for my first issue as the editor-in-chief, Miley Cyrus was the cover. We shot her in her farm, and it was in June of 2021. And it was right when people were just starting to get together for this amazing summer that I really think will be remembered the summer of 2021 because it was like this moment where we were out of hibernation and people started to really come together again doing photo shoots doing stuff that was happening like we were doing photo shoots through COVID, but it was always such a nightmare and it was like okay we're on our 18th try trying to make this one little thing happen suddenly at that moment everything was happening and everything seemed possible and people were working together and it's just really exciting anyway we had this great picture of miley topless as the cover and then the, oh my God, I have to choose my words carefully here so I don't get in trouble. I was censored, but I was not censored by the publisher or the president or anything, but I was censored by someone else. So I guess I will not mention. And then everyone was sitting around saying like, I can't believe in this day and age that you're being censored for this and that about this image because it's a woman and it's, you know, free the nipple. And it's just insane that we're still here. You know, the fact that I can work somewhere where people think that that's outrageous and wrong is very luxurious to me that I work with cool people that are liberal in their ideas and they don't think everything should just be like the status quo is very cool. It also is a reminder that interviews are very small publication what's a very independent publication it is not a huge thing like a Conde Nast or something and I like being within that it's a nice place to be yeah and again it's that interesting marriage that you managed to accomplish between working with the celebrity talent you bring into the title while retaining the creative freedom of an independent publication which is again kind of a dream come true yeah I feel like people know what they're getting into when they're coming into interview and they want to have a good time mm-hmm. You also mentioned at one point that so many conversations, you can kind of feel that they're being put through these filters of talking points and, you know, media training and publicist approval and all of those other things. Given the nature of the talent that you tend to work with, is that commonly a series of barriers you come up against? Or do you generally feel like you have creative freedom when it comes to the conversations you run? One of the things that I've loved working on as the editor-in-chief of interview are the conversations and trying to create conversations that I want to read. Because according to you, nobody reads anymore. You know, hey, I might be saying it, but I ain't the only one. I I think there's a lot of opportunities for great conversations. I understand why a lot of things are heavily guarded because of 
publicists, et cetera. And there's a lot of reasons for people to be scared of being real and talking. I mean, we're in America today. It's a very scary place to speak honestly about anything, really. Mm -hmm. I don't think that speaking authentically, truthfully is a contemporary thing. If we want to talk about what's contemporary now, being terrified of speaking what you actually think is very contemporary now. Which is really interesting coming from you because I think it's something that's so refreshing about how you show up in the industry is you don't seem to be all that filtered. I mean, the things you say, the way you think and what ends up being printed in the conversations you have with other, you know, highly recognizable people. It definitely doesn't seem to be all that filtered. Well, I, I think it's it's definitely honest, but I just mean uh-huh. in general, I'm not just talking about me. I just of think course, there's a yeah. definite veil of terror over everybody. Like, I didn't say the right thing. Is this the right thing to say? Should I be talking at all? Don't you think? I mean, come on. Like, no, everyone's, everyone's scared right, yeah. to talk and be real in any way. But I think within that... It's uh-huh. an important time to still be talking, and and I just think things shouldn't be so manufactured. Because when someone gets on a, when two amazing people get on a phone call and just talk, like they've been taught to talk about their craft, and they've been taught to talk about their skills or their next projects or whatever, it's boring. Nobody wants to read that stuff. And it's not, it doesn't mean that craft is boring. It's just like these very, very packaged kind of conversations, I think, about boring. So it's been really fun to try to figure out how to remix that. Mm -hmm. Some people are just great at talking, too. I mean, some people are amazing. It's so true. But to kind of lean in on that point, because I do think it's really interesting, we have to wonder when the pendulum swing will reverse, right? Given that we know historically everything is always going to be cyclical. And you were talking about one of your primary sources of inspiration when it came to an interest in fashion and the transformation that it kind of allowed you to accomplish or achieve. Madonna was very much, you know, a voice in the culture that sort of pushed against what was considered unforgivable at different points in time. And of course, that eventually I wouldn't say glamorized controversy, but it became a commodity in and of itself. It was almost a tactic, right? And then we've kind of arrived at a point today where you're at the risk of actual cancel culture. So controversy maybe is less whimsical as it was once able to be in the culture. Do you feel like you're witnessing, especially in the bubblings of youth culture that you surround yourself with, any type of swing back in the opposite direction of that pendulum in terms of people who are ready to challenge that kind of fear that you're talking about? I think it's such an interesting question. Yes, it's a very confusing pendulum because it's uh-huh. going all over the place. She's swinging like crazy all over the place. You know what I mean? I think there's a definite nihilistic spirit that is permeating everywhere. That is probably the answer to a lot of cancel culture stuff which is scary, especially because like God knows what's going to happen in the next 18 months in America. But I would say that that is so weird, right? What is going to happen? It's so crazy. Well, that's the really beautiful part of having the luxury of working as a creative, right? So much of your role is generative and based on optimism, because if you can't see beyond what is to what can be, then you know, it's quite challenging to be creative in any sense, right? That's the whole nature of what that looks like as a process. So we've touched upon some of the things that are, albeit frightening, but what 
are the things you find exciting today? I mean, you're very much in the culture. What are you finding the most intriguing? I definitely think pop music is having a huge comeback right now. And then I think that that's also because the world's been so serious and everything's so buttoned up and scary and all that. And you have to be good and you have to be like this and blah, 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 blah. blah. And I think the kids were like, shut up. We're, we're kids. Fuck off. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And there's so much good pop music happening now. And I think that's really starting to bubble over. It's not shit i didn't go to the beyonce or taylor swift concerts neither those are my faves i like both of them but they're not concerts i went to but i just feel like pop is bubbling and i think it's gonna be having a comeback interesting it's never gone away it's never gone away but like it's just seems to be happening and the kids are into this or that or there's subcultures and i think the kids are dressing crazy slutty right now like oh my god i went to this Salem concert show in Coney Island at the end of July and everyone's like naked, like naked lingerie. Like this is not giving you like stealth wealth or whatever Instagram is telling you 75,000 times a day is like the look. Nobody is giving you that. Like they're just giving you like a different thing. So as much as your algorithm is telling you it's one way, I see kids definitely ignoring that, which is good. Absolutely. And it's also a prime example of how we've arrived at a point where there's a simultaneous coexistence of so many different ideas of what style is, beauty is, you know, different identity narratives and whatnot. And that's something you've touched upon before as well around the idea of what was contemporary, which was the idea of this sort of hyper veneer and this hyper raw, you know, within the same period of time. Yes, definitely. Is that something you still feel? Yeah, I think raw... And so over the top, I think they're both going to continue fighting, which I like. Yeah, we need those tensions. And you did touch upon the notion of what you think is contemporary now when you were mentioning the sort of fear of saying the wrong thing and the kind of lack of safety in public forum when it comes to the culture we live in today. But pulling back the lens and kind of asking you that question more specifically, what in your opinion is contemporary now? Okay, I'm definitely going to say that fear is contemporary now. I don't want to give any manufactured answer here. I think that fear is contemporary now, and it's so depressing. And I think it's really important to try to react to that for myself. All I can do is just say for me, I think that fear and loathing is truly the most contemporary thing now. It's totally gross. It's totally real. We are all filled with fear and loathing for, you know, this, that, and the other. And I think that, like, confidence and an open spirit for change is the only way past that, which I definitely think that Gen Z is so much nicer and seem so much more effortlessly cool towards one another, but... If fear and loathing is what's really contemporary now, what I'd really like to see is whatever comes past that. I also really think that it's exciting to see whatever is coming past that that is not retro. Mm. I think we're about to really be going into a big 80s moment. Like 80s seems How to be like that the, the thing one that... fucking decade that will never die. I mean, I, I just know. can't it's so understand. Funny. I was talking to a kid in my office about this. who's like 22 and... I was like, look at all these TikToks of 80s stuff. And I was thinking, like, why? Why now? 
Mm-hmm. We didn't, neither of us had a good, we don't have a good answer. We're just looking at our algorithms, talking about it. But anyway, unfortunately, I think I'm going to go with Tyrone all day. People have good reason to be scared. And also people that work within the fashion industry, which is something that you cover really well in this podcast, like there's plenty of reasons to be scared. There's plenty of reasons to give really good responses that sort of sound smart, but are also going to sound like what everyone else is saying. It's the easier, softer way. I mean, you're wrapping. I mean, like meaning last year, last year made us really, there's a lot of good reasons to be scared of doing the wrong thing or making the wrong moves. But I do agree with your notion that despite the fact that those things are all true, there is a very promising sort of emergence amongst younger generations in terms of their psychology and the culture that they represent amongst one another and how that will ultimately kind of change things over time, which is great. I feel like people are calling bullshit on that and that things are going to change. It's going to be a really difficult couple of years worldwide and in America itself. There's so much upheaval going on. But the idea of what is contemporary now will continue to shift. And yes, there definitely is a vibe shift that seems like light at the end of a long tunnel to me. Gorgeous. Thank you, Mel. You're so welcome. Thank you. You were so lovely to talk to. Thanks for listening to this episode of What's Contemporary Now. A special thanks to our show's producer, Cheyenne Asadi, who makes it all possible. Original theme music by Joseph Top Miller and Chase Coughlin of The Black Soft. And visual design by Aaron Marr and Graham Prentice. Subscribe now to be the first to hear new episodes. And for more content, follow us on Instagram at What's Contemporary or visit us online at whatscontemporary.com. Oh.